Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. I'm David Chase, and it is go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody. This is Go Time, episode number 52, where we're joined by David Chase. I'm Brian Kettleson, standing in for Eric St. Martin, who is out today. I'm joined by Carlicia Pinto. Hi, everybody. And Ashley McNamara. If you're filling in for Eric, who am I filling in for? You're filling you? in for me. Perfect. Yep, I'm standing in for Eric. You're standing in for me. Carlicia standing in for Carlicia, and David is standing in for David. Right. Perfect. So, David, why don't you start off by introducing yourself, kind of giving us uh, some background and telling us what you do. So I guess my background is in programming languages, compilers, and programming language runtimes. Um, this started out way back when, when Fortran. <laughs> but now I work on Go, mostly on the Go compiler. But there is a pretty healthy runtime component to the compiler work. So and the, the garbage collector, for instance, requires write barriers. The compiler has to be aware of them, and it can do optimizations involving them. The scheduling in Go is cooperative, and the compiler enforces the cooperation. And I'm already pretty much down deep in the weeds with what I do, but those examples of what the work is like. I have experience with some of the features that people talk about wanting for go to so i try to contribute there too like generics nice so can you kind of you know i'm i'm a, more of a business information guy rather than a computer science guy can you kind of give us the run a rundown of what components are involved in a compiler what 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 does a, a compiler do when i type in source code Stop stealing my questions, hey. Brian. Hey, be nice. <laughs> so it, it varies somewhat from compiler to compiler, but in general, uh, they tend to have phases and they sort of mix and match. So you start with you start with the characters. They tend to transform those into a tree-based representation. Usually, they do scanning to break it into tokens and then parsing to combine the tokens into more struct with more structure once you have the tree you can do a certain amount of i think they would call it, you you would call it semantic analysis so enforcing a lot of the rules of the language you know can you look at this can you look at that do the types match and so on and some compilers go straight from the tr go straight from tree to code generation. And in fact, the Go compiler used to do that. Uh, about God, I can't even remember which release it was. Um, I guess we lit up SSA at one point seven. We added a phase 
Um, Keith Randall talked about this at GopherCon, and that talk will be online in a little while. But we we added a lower level phase. It's somewhat closer to the machine code, but it is also structured, and it makes it easy to express a lot of optimizations. And it was surprisingly easy to do our ports too um, when we went from supporting it on one platform to all of them. So the Go compiler, again, is characters come in, scan and parse into an AST, do semantic analysis to enforce rules, transform AST to SSA, and do a certain amount of optimization. And then we interface to the Go assembler, and out comes machine code. Um, that's, that's a crude description. There are certain important analyses that we do on the tree-based form still. and. It would actually be a lot of work to get some of them out. Uh, escape analysis is actually interprocedural within the package within the package that's being compiled, and on top of all the packages that it requires. And it would be nice to move that into the SSA framework, but it would require several changes to the SSA framework, and in particular, it would require us to do the entire package at one time in SSA which is not what it's built to do just yet. So when you say you do escape analysis against the AST, um, does that mean that there are notations added to the source code somehow or to the abstract syntax tree that show well, the results of that escape analysis? How does that analysis move from the AST into the final generated code? So the AST nodes... Um, sort of an artifact. If you go look at the Go source tree, you will find two ASTs. And one of them is sort of very visible and it's for public consumption for source code transformation. There's the one, there's also the one that the compiler uses. And the one that the compiler uses, the AST nodes have a lot of extra baggage added to them to do just that, among other things. So that you can say, this this identifier had its address taken, therefore it probably can't go in a register. Um, escape analysis runs over all the identifiers that have their address taken, or all the expressions too, because you can have it. So at the at the tree level, you know, sort of everything can have a name, even if it doesn't have a source code name. Mm -hmm. And so everything that could have its address taken, escape analysis looks to see where those addresses go, and not only locally tags them by saying, you know, your heap, your heap, your heap, uh, you're a stack, your stack, your stack. Um, it also generates interprocedural summary information to go into the export data for the package. So that if you, I, you know, I don't have any handy examples, but there are functions that you can call of say two parameters. And it says this guy, this function, yeah, you pass the pointers in, but that's okay. This function looks but does not does not tell, does not spread them around. So if they weren't escaping, they are still not escaping. So may have been again deeper in the weeds, but no, that's where we want to go. We want to go deep. Okay. We have several uh, listener questions. So we're gonna start with, with Matt first. He said, What is a good place to get started if you want to contribute to the Go compiler? <sighs> oh, Oh, I'm seeing the Slack channel. I wasn't paying attention. Mm -hmm. Rats. It's fine. I'll read them. So 
My personal hobby horse this month is that we need better benchmarks, but that's not the same as the technical work on the compiler, even though it's really important because um, our our benchmarks are not the things that people run that they actually care about. Mm. Um, not all the architectures receive the same amount of attention. So if someone were, say, a particular fan of ARM or ARM64 or PowerPC64, or MIPS. We have people who look at MIPS and MIPS 64. Um, it's possible that there are idioms that we're getting wrong and we could do better. And so the, I'm, I'm thinking about what's the most accessible part of the compiler. And the most accessible part of the compiler is, to me at least, so that could be wrong, where we lower the code from generic SSA to the various architectures instruction sets that's pattern matching and it's pretty obvious to see what it's doing and there have been cases where we just didn't have the right pattern for something or we were missing a pattern some of them could be a little grotty but they're not all and that's just a good place to um it's, it's a good place to start you can you can un, you can look at it and you can understand what's happening if that makes any sense that that's so that brings up a question for me, though. Does do we do we no longer have the um, intermediate Go assembler that's output? Is that is there still a step that outputs Go assembler, uh, the old Plan Nine assembler, which then gets translated, or is that step gone now? Um, it's essentially still there. It's building internal assembler data structures. I don't think we're I don't think we're actually writing a file. Oh, I see. But I know we're not writing a file. There's a follow-up question to Matt's original question about how to contribute, and he was asking if there is any uh, recommended reading for Tyler internals. Um, hang on just a second. I'm fully expecting David to come back with the title of his book that he wrote. Right, same. No, I have not written the book. Um, <laughs> I was going to grab three books that I know of. I don't actually know if any of these do a good job of covering SSA. Okay, so we have a little one whole subchapter in Cooper and Torxon. So that's one, that's engineering a compiler. And what you can also do um, if you want to research that question a little bit is you can drop it in the Slack channel later and I can help remind you. Okay, that might be a good thing to do. Um, wowzers. <laughs> yeah, so I have, I have several compiler books. I know that Andrew Appel has written several for very, in various programming languages, which might be interesting to um, look at if you, were, you know, if you were already familiar with a particular programming language. That is another another choice so here's a question is there a a compiler that people consider to be like a, a canonical compiler implementation or a particularly easy to access or easy to grab compiler implementation like is there one compiler that's so much nicer than all the others um there used to be one um lcc had a reputation it's a fraser and hansen but it's it's you know some of this is a little old, 
but it was a relatively small, relatively easy to comprehend compiler. Um, I don't think that the Go compiler is necessarily that scary. Um, I don't know. It seems pretty scary to me. Um, like I want you to explain everything like I'm five. Yeah. So the problem is I'm sitting here thinking of the compilers I've worked in. And what happens is that anything that's successful gets ported to a lot of architectures. And then as soon as it gets ported to a lot of architectures, that introduces all the generality that you need to support a bunch of architectures. And then people want it to go faster and you start getting more and more hair and optimizations. And the Go compiler's not bad. Uh, <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad. What what could make it better? Um well so this is a problem because it means better for whom? So we have stuff in the pipeline right now that is going to be, I think, way better for compile time and a little bit better for performance. So we think that if we improve the um, import-export again, we already improved it once, if we do it again, then we can make it more on-demand and less batchy. And uh, that, in turn, will allow us to turn on inlining, um, what they call mid-stack inlining. And so that'll be good. We, you know, we think that that might make everything about 5% faster, um, except that it won't make compile time faster until we do this lazy, um, lazy import, lazy import will be great. It automate compiling a little bit faster than it is right now, even, even with the expensive extra inlining, but from the point of view of reading the compiler, it got a little worse. Yeah, that makes some sense. I mean, there's always a, a cost. What else is in the pipeline for the compiler? For one nine, maybe for one ten. Well, yeah. To one nine, one ten, two point zero. So I don't know everything. I know around me. Um, we tried to get in a CL, a big CL that would have improved the debugging experience for optimized code, and we didn't make it. And so that is definitely in the pipeline. Uh, we want to we want to have a better story for that. We want to, you know, if you have to, in particular, if you have a crash and you get a dump. That's generally optimized code, which is the usual case for Go. And what was the CL for? Well, so when we run SSA, it tends to break up variable lifetimes into, into smaller chunks. And so they'll go in and out of registers. They, right now, they're still homed to the same, same stack slot. But over this, you know, this basic block, it might be in a register. And then a little while later, it might be in a different register. And so we have to emit the debugging information that describes that value movement in and out of registers. So we, that's, that's something that we really want to get done at 110. Um, we have been getting more and more trouble with loop. So I mentioned that the cooperation, the cooperative scheduling in Go is enforced by the compiler. And Right now, it's kind of lightly enforced. It enforces it when you enter a function or method. But if you are running in a tight loop that has no function calls within it, it does not enforce any cooperation there. And this is a particular problem. Um, Reese Hiltner mentioned this 
in his um, tutorial or his talk also at GopherCon. Also, you know, where the garbage collector needs it needs to interrupt all the threads right at the beginning of a GC just for a few microseconds. But it does need to interrupt all of them. And it does this by asking them to reschedule themselves. They all reschedule. They discover that a garbage collection is in process. And they go stand in a corner and wait till the GC does its thing. And then says, yeah, back in the pool, go. And then there's this one guy running a tight loop. And the GC tries to tap him on the shoulder. and He does not respond. And does not respond and does not respond and does not respond. And so everything hangs up. And it can be... A an appreciable fraction of your pause time for GC. And in some rare cases, it can be long. And so we need to fix that. And so we need to change the compiler to add a preemption check on every loop back edge. And the problem with that is that it slows down your loops a little bit. Mm. And some loops, it slows down a lot. So there's follow-up work to try to figure out if we can mitigate this cost um, using a clever implementation. We have already tried loop unrolling, and for whatever reason, it was not helpful. So either we did it wrong, um, we probably did it wrong, because we did it kind of in a very bloody-minded way. Um, just, you know, take the loop, don't get smart about the indexing or anything, just do the check over and over. It just... I want to say make two copies of the body, but check after every execution of the body, so twice per loop. Whereas in many counted loops, you could say, well, I'm going to unroll by two, increment by two, and then I'll worry about the odd case at the end. And so we didn't do anything that clever. So that's also for 110, is dealing with that and the, and the knock-on problems there. Um, the garbage collector guys are looking into whether they can make generational collection work and that will add a write barrier that's going to be on all the time, which will then motivate us to look a lot harder at write barrier optimizations. I, I don't know who's going to be doing that. Um, might be me, might be somebody else. But we're certainly motivated to look at it. I wonder if you have a feature that is on at the top of your wish list that if you had no constraint you could implement that and make Go a ton better? I hate to say if it had no constraints, because that's not really, that's not really Go. And pretend it's magic. Pretend it's magic. Yes. Oh, man. Maybe no time constraints or no budget constraints. Well, so you're talking completely compatible. Are you talking about Go the language or Go its implementation? Go the language. Um, I just trying to assess where your mind is in terms of uh, what you admire, like w what you admire about Go, and how do you see it becoming better than it is? It doesn't really matter. I just wanted to get a sense for how you think about Go. So, if I were to say, look at the proposals that went by in the last year or so for Go two. The one that I really kind of would love to see, that you know that I almost thought they could have put in, it had I think it had syntax that would have allowed us to put it in if we wanted to was the multi-dimensional slices. Uh, that's really kind of my Fortran background speaking there, mm -hmm. but um, 
it's one of these things where people who don't write that kind of code think, yeah, yeah, it's easy. You just, you just code it up. It's fine. Um, and it's the usual thing. Anything that I don't actually have to do that someone else has to do that must be easy. And it's really much nicer to have the multidimensional syntax. And it's really much better in terms of generating code and doing bounce check elimination if you have it built into the language. And it's tremendously useful and for a certain kind of computing. And the people for whom it's useful, this is the Fortran crowd, uh, they've sort of been stuck at Fortran for ages. Uh, C++ has done amazing things for them, but often you have to be willing to sign up for crazy C++ templates. Um, you know, Go is this nice, clean, comprehensible language. It's just a little thing, and you could do I, it, it appeals to me, you know, generics, like, oh, yeah, generics would be cool if we could agree on what they meant. Um, and if we could agree on their implementation characteristic of what we wanted to do. And and there's all sorts of risks where it might not make it a better language. Yeah, of course. So, um, I, so the one for me that looked like the most likely to win would be the multidimensional slices. I liked that a lot. It didn't make it in made me sad. I want to flip this question around and ask you what it's in Go today from a compiler perspective that you would be happy removing. And maybe that's not even a fair question because uh, as far as functionality, Go is already so minimalist. But I was wondering if you had one or two things that you could get rid of easily. Um, I have... It's not a compiler thing. Um, I have opinions about how things go back and forth to see go, and we're close. And I think that we're converging. Um, we may be, we may have already met, and I may, I may have just misunderstood because I don't do enough C go programming to get a really good feel for some of the details. Um, Nah, that's not probably not even that. It's a tiny, like you said, it's a tiny language. They did not put a lot of. Um, there's not a lot of crud in it. Yeah, we like um, it that way. Yeah, we do yeah, like well, it that way. Yeah, Scott uh, Mansfield has a has a question that sort of uh, ties back into what you were talking about before: how the changes that you guys are making are not really going to affect uh, compile time. Uh, he was asking, uh, do you think that the speed of compilation is hamstringing the advancements in the compiler? I thought that that was a good question. So when he says advancements, he's talking about you know, like 17 zillion amazing optimizations <laughs> that we could be doing that we're not. Um, at one level, yeah, sure. But I have worked on compilers like that. And if you want to have... So, there, so there's an aspect of Go that makes it, I want to say, I, this is a tricky conversation to have, but... Um, he says it's a loaded question, but <laughs> thank well, you. I mean, his question is loaded, but if you do a lot, you know, if you do, you know, absolutely, there are things, there are optimizations that we are unlikely to do because the implementation costs are too high. And otherwise, it is, it is just kind of a pain. And you sort of live with it. Um, in some cases, it means that you, you know, it's, it's one of these usual, you know, three three good things choose two. 
because you could make a compiler that did more optimization and also ran quickly ish, but that often means that you would be using really hairy algorithms. And we've had to do this already. So, you know, returning to the SSA representation, it's really interesting because it lets you express a number of optimizations in a very clean way. And it lets you express these transformations in a very clean way. But if you actually look at how SSA is generated, there is a step in there that for some inputs, the first time we did it, just caused the compiler to go ape. You know, six gigabytes, 40 minutes, that kind of crazy. And we read papers. And so we had to go and implement stuff from papers. And we have also had um, bugs every once in a while where someone very cleverly took a recursive depth first search numbering transformation kind of an algorithm. And they got the rec- and they de recursed it and they turned it into something that maintained its own stack. And they subtly perturbed the depth for search numbering. It wasn't really depth for search anymore. And you'd get these crazy bugs that you would not catch with any simple example. So again, you get a fast, you know, you have a nice fast compiler, but some of the algorithms underpinning SSA are delicate and sneaky. And so this is the problem. It's like, yeah, if we were willing to just burn time, we could pretty easily implement some hairy optimizations. Some, some more aggressive optimizations. Uh, but we can't burn time. So whatever we do, we have to be a lot more clever. Right. The other reason to prefer simplicity, I think, and this may just be me, is um, I think one reason to like Go right now is that you do have a prayer of understanding it end to end. Whereas, you know, a C compiler is crazy nowadays. And a Java compiler, including Hotspot, is absolutely crazy, just bananas. And what you care about that for is for things like correctness and security. You know, Go is not a formally verified compiler, but those are pretty rare, but they're getting less rare. And you could imagine that if we kept the language small, that maybe we'd get there someday. Maybe not this Go compiler, but another one. But even without formal verification, we at least have a chance of, you know, reading the whole thing and understanding all the parts and how they work. It is so refreshing to hear someone like you say that. And that was actually, I actually wanted to confirm that when you were talking about simplicity, you were talking about readability. Well, I mean, ultimately, it's, you worry a little bit about, about it from the point of view of security, but... Um, I mean, you know, don't forget who worked on this compiler. Ken Thompson, Trusting Trust. Yeah. (laughs) Best paper ever. I would like for you to tell us more about what you just mentioned uh, about, uh, I even forgot the words you said. The the Uh, verified compiler? Exactly. What is that? Yes, Um, somebody just asked that. And and why is that important? So I. I'm sorry. And why don't we have it? So I don't have direct experience with them. So I want to you know, be careful I don't go out on a limb and make stuff up. Um, a verified compiler is one where you have proved 
that it's transformations. You formally proved that it's transformations are formally correct. And part of the reason that you don't have these is because if you're going to talk about actual, you know, dotted I's and cross T's correctness, you need to have an exact specification of the input language and its behavior, intended behavior. And then you need to have an exact specification of how the hardware is going to behave. Or in the case of so much of our hardware, you have to have an exact specification of how a subset that you, the, the subset that you use of the hardware behaves. So in particular, if you don't know for sure what some of these instructions do, then you don't do those instructions. So part of the obstacle is getting the specifications, clean specs for the endpoints. And then the rest of the problem is that you get back to the, boy, I want my code to run fast and I want my compiler to compile code quickly. And this forces you either to have a great big, you know, you, you end up with the giant compiler, you end up with the tricky algorithms, and you might not have a proof for some of them. Okay. Uh, is that getting in the, in the vague direction? I mean, but you've actually proved that it's going to do the right thing. And you have a proof. You don't just have testing. It's still hard for me to grasp the why if we have verified, but like we have proved it, but we have, we just, we don't have the test. I don't know what that means, but we don't have to go deep into that, into those woods. I'm just curious whether we have to verify every backend, every different target. So do you have to verify for x86-64 and also for ARM5 or whatever? Is there, do you have to target? You have to verify each different target? Well, what do you mean? Do you want, you know, it's verified where it's verified. And if you don't, then you don't know for sure. And, you know, we don't know this now. I, I mean, we're talking about a different world than the one that we're in. The world that we're in, we compile our code and we feel lucky. I, I feel lucky every time my code compiles. Okay. Same. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there is, you know, and certainly when you work on a compiler, there's, you know, a lot of times I'm working with a buggy compiler because I'm usually breaking it. But I mean, right now these are only used in very um, high risk applic applications. I believe they are used. Um, my recollection is that some of the interesting work has happened in England, and I think that it, and I think that some of it is used in avionics code so you know real-time controllers for flight services and things like that um that makes sense and i could be wrong on the details because i'm pretty sure that they would i'm pretty sure that the guys doing airbus would care about this <laughs> so i have a follow-up question on something we talked about a little bit before um the idea of adding more optimizations at the expense of uh, compilation speed do you think there's an, a chance that we'll end up with um, optimizations that are guarded by flags, build flags, like GCC has, for example? I, I assume it has to happen eventually, but I think it's our intent to put it off as long as we can, because every flag that you add then becomes something that you have to test, and then every flag that you add becomes something that you have to document. And, um, you know, it, and it complicates, it complicates everything. It complicates your bug reporting. 
uh, you know, you have the option, you know, what happens if you have a bunch of packages that you depend upon and they're just, and some of them are compiled one way and some of them are compiled the other way. And then you have a bug and then you have to report the bug. Does the bug report have to include the compilation flags for each of the packages that you have in it? Um, I mean, I assume nonetheless that it will have to happen. There will come a time when there's enough um, extra performance to be had for something that's sufficiently important, but it hasn't happened yet. So in terms of performance, I know that the LLVM ecosystem was considered very early on in Go, and it's changed quite a bit uh, in the last 10 years since since they looked at it. Is there a, a possibility for a uh, backend for Go and LLVM in the future? Uh, it's being worked on. Uh, Than McIntosh, who is, I can't see him because I've got my door closed, but he sits like, you know, 20 feet that away from me. Than McIntosh is working on that. Um, we're not there yet. And it will be a while before we get the same garbage collector. But this might be an option for people who maybe don't need the amazing sub millisecond pause times and want a higher throughput. Hmm. Would that also bring, I, I'm not terribly familiar with LLVM, but wouldn't it bring a lot of extra tooling too to the uh, ecosystem? I don't know. I'm not that familiar with LLVM either. Okay. We'll find out someday. Okay. So Caleb asked the most important question, in my opinion. What kind of pie does a Go compiler team like best? Oh, his was uh, Key Lime versus um, Pecan. Hey, you're you are not limited to those pies. No, that's that's a that's a really bad subset of pies. I mean, if you don't it, include it, banana cream, then it's not even a pie uh, question. Wait, um, why why is this question even being asked? Why not like what kind of muffin or donuts? Why pie? Because is that pie. a joke? Is that an eternal? Okay, is that why? Okay. Guys, we can't. It, it right now. We're just interested in pies, but we could go into the whole pastry line. So I can definitely say that for me, pie beats muffins, and pie See? beats donuts. <laughs> and I don't know if it beats donuts. That's easy. Uh, but and personally, I am very happy with either key lime or pecan pie. Um, mm. I did once make six pecan pies for science where each one was a different recipe. So I could see which one was the best recipe. Nice. Which one was the best recipe? That's the problem. I, um, I forgot. That that's a, that's a big problem. You can't say that one was the best and not know. You could say that one was the best, but not remember which one. That's true. One was oh, yeah, the yeah. best. There's no doubt that one was the best. And I think maybe the most important thing to do is make six pies again. Yes, for science, of course. For science. For science. I do recall that the recipes with butter in them really ended up kind of slimy, and I wouldn't recommend that. Hmm. Oh, that's upsetting. Yeah. Okay, so pecan was the answer. Or key lime? I like key lime a lot. Um, there you go, Caleb. Pecan pie is just amazing. It's just so. I think pecan pie has 
too many pecans. <laughs> How dare <it's>, you? <laughs> it's just too nutty. <laughs> I know. But I do like both of those pies. They're they are. No, no Boston cream pie for you. Oh, it's it's okay. I mean, pie is good. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of you know which pie that pecan has to win. Actually, um, I don't know. I'm all about apple a la mode. Now, apple you guys, nice. we we asked David this question. You can't tell him he's wrong. That that's I'm they telling tell him me his I'm answer right. is wrong. Are they you pie explaining him? him? I think you're pie explaining David. I, I, oh my they, god! Can we hashtag that immediately? Yes, they're just trying to. Ref, they're trying to refresh my memory, and I think that's okay. Because there's a lot of pies. I mean, there's chess pie. Um, you can make a key lime recipe with other sour citrus besides limes, and those some of those are very good. So a um, a key lime pie that's instead made with calamondin juice is very nice. Wow! All I'm saying is that you should not have to give an answer without receiving pie. So Caleb, uh... yes, that's right, Caleb. So. Get your shipping engines ready because it's time to send some pies to the compiler team. Truth. Hey, can I get a pie too? I don't even care what pie. Just be a homemade pie and I'm happy. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm happy. Pie. Homemade. I agree. Store-bought. Yeah, I don't pie pie. Pie. Send me pie. <laughs> so I, I have one thing to add on the pie subject, then we should probably move on because we're a little bit off topic. But the best <laughs> pie in the entire universe was made by Emerald Lagasse at his restaurant, and it's banana cream pie, and it's the by far the best pie ever. I, I won't even begin to describe how good it is because I'm hungry right now. But if you get an opportunity to eat Emerald Lagasse's banana cream pie, it's it's a life changing religious experience. Where is this? At, at any of uh, Emerald Lagasse's restaurants. He's got a couple in Louisiana, and he has a couple here in Orlando, and I don't know where else. Good stuff. Crazy good stuff. Beyond good stuff. So on that note, on that uh, sidetrack note, we should probably move on to interesting Go projects and news as we are starting to run low on time. (laughs) <laughs> somebody's suggesting that maybe we should have our next gopher con at a place where we can get that pie. And I think that's a really, really interesting idea that we should explore. I agree. So let's move on to go projects and news. Anything interesting other than gopher con happen in the last couple of weeks that we want to bring up? Are you serious? Did you just ask that question? I did, but anything exciting outside of gopher con? I mean, we'll oh, have a whole outside. show just about gopher con. Outside of gopher con? Yes. No, I'm sorry. I'm still. Nobody's prepared on. to talk anything about anything besides GopherCon. I'm still, I'm still getting over GopherCon slowly. That's <laughs> all I think about. Yeah, I'm, I'm still a little tired. So I ran across a couple news items that uh, were interesting this week. Um, JBD wrote a great article on the scheduler, and that is at uh, raykill.org, r-a-k-y-l-l.org/scheduler. Um, really good article about how the scheduler works and i always like those um those deep dives into the things that are happening underneath so that was cool and then um 
There's a cool game engine that I noticed on GitHub about two weeks ago that I didn't get to mention because we haven't had a show for a while, and it's called Oak. And that's at github.com slash oakmound slash oak. And it's a Go-based, pure Go-based game engine. So it does uh, all of its rendering and, and all of that stuff. OMG, uh, Brian. What? Can we play with it in the pocket chip? Yes, we can play oh, with it in the pocket chip. my goodness. Exactly. Oh, okay. So exciting. So, yeah, it looks very cool and uh, has very, very few dependencies underneath, which I think is probably the best part. When I was reading, I actually did a couple of their um, examples and ran code, and it, it worked really beautifully, and it has very, very few dependencies. Um, the only thing on Linux is an audio dependency, so it's very self-contained, which is kind of slick. This is and happy. It is happy. And and speaking, we should probably kind of circle back and talk about these pocket chips real quick. The uh, the pocket chip is this amazing, cool little computer thing. Um, it's it's smaller than a Raspberry Pi, uh, but it's got a a little maybe four ish inch TFT screen and a keyboard on it. And it's um, ARM seven maybe ARM seven chip. And it's just so cool. You you push a little button and it boots into Linux and it does cool stuff. It plays retro games and whatever. But of course, the first thing I did was boot it up to the terminal. And after typing uname just to find out what it was running, which is Debian, uh, I installed Go as one does. And it, it runs <laughs> Go very beautifully. And it's it's a slick little toy. It so, is so yeah. cute. And you can yep. 3D print um, like cases for it. Did you see that, Brian? I've got one printing right now, uh, a screen cover with the uh, keycaps and key covers. I went into my garage and I did not see a tarantula, so I might take my 3D printer out of my garage. You you braved the spider just to get to the 3D printer? I did. You were awesome. Well, she didn't see the spider. (laughs) Just because you didn't see it doesn't mean he's not crawling on your back right now. Why would you do that to me? Why would you say those things to me? So to give, people, to give people context, uh, we, so we're talking about the pocket chip because that was what was gifted to the GopherCon speakers. Yes. And it yeah. is just, it's, it's a 60 or $70 computer. It's so amazing. So much fun. If you like it all playing with um, uh, small devices, especially something uh, that is Linux, but very, very portable and has a cute little screen and keyboard, then I can't recommend the pocket chip enough. It's, it's tons of fun. I really haven't stopped playing with mine since last week. Totally amazing. So back to news, there's a great new book out by Catherine Cox Bidet, one of our speakers from uh, maybe GopherCon 2015 called Concurrency and Go. And that's a O'Reilly book that was just released to print. So I think it's available in electronic form, but not quite yet in paper form. And that's very very exciting. I, I had the privilege of reading through an earlier version of it and it's, it's very well done. Concurrency and go is a tough topic to hit and she did a great job on it. So I'm excited that there's another good resource for concurrency out there and a whole book dedicated to it. Yeah, exactly. I'm really excited to see a whole book about concurrency. And uh, I pre-ordered it. I'm waiting for my hard copy because it's important enough that I want to hold it in my hand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
And I wanted to, uh, on the topic of schedulers, I wanted to make sure we mentioned Cindy Sridharan. I might have mispronounced her last name, but it's Cindy. And she wrote an amazing uh, blog post about cluster schedulers. It's really well written. She got a lot of praise online for the post. So if you're interested in schedulers, should read that too. Oh, that was a very good post. I agree. Yeah. Now I know what you're talking about. Good. We should put the link to that up on the show notes too. I just, yeah, I just dropped it. I'm not sure if I'm using the right document, but. Oh, perfect. Yes. Yeah. Cindy's really active in the San Francisco Go community. Yes. All right. So we like to end our show with uh, Free Software Friday, which is a shout out to any open source group or maintainer or project uh, that you love, that you enjoy, that you can't live without. Um, and it's, it's something that we like to do because we use a lot of open source and we really appreciate all the hard work that people put into those projects and feel like they're kind of thankless. So um, I will start off by shouting out to Dave Cheney because we just don't give Dave enough credit for all of the amazing work he does for our community. If you have a question about Go, there's a blog post that Dave wrote that covers it. If you have a problem that you need to solve in Go, he probably wrote the canonical package that fixes that problem, like his package errors. Um, I, I don't know where we need to start to get his errors package included into the standard library, but if it doesn't happen, I'm going to leave Go for Pony. So just just FYI, I'm, Plus I'm moving one. off of Go if we don't get errors in the standard library. Plus and one to all of Dave, that. Dave also puts in unbelievable, immeasurable amount of work into helping us prepare the speakers for GopherCon each year. Not only does he head the selection committee, but then he spends countless hours with each speaker, helping them prepare and getting them up to the A plus level that we expect from our speakers and that we get from our speakers every year. So uh, you just, we, we can't thank Dave enough for all that he does for our community. And that's why he is my number one free software Friday shout out. Anybody else have a, a person or a project or a thing that they want to shout out for free software Friday? I want to give a sh shout out to uh, GoDoc. It's amazing that uh, it's such a neat tool that we have. And for people who are new and don't know, you can run GoDoc on your machine if you're offline and uh, you get on your browser all the documentation for all packages that you have residing in your system. And uh, yesterday I found out that you can write documentation for each of your packages in a separate file called doc.go. If you have a lot of documentation to write, you can put it all in there. Uh, so instead of ending up with separate files with tons of documentation in those files. It's really neat. I didn't know that. Very nice. I want to shout out Brian and Eric. You had to have known that this was coming. Um, GopherCon was amazing. Every detail was on point. The sessions were awesome. That uh, contributor day. Oh, my God. Why, why, why is the Go team not doing those like once a week? It was so good. That was great. The The contributor thing was amazing. I don't know if they had a final count, but I think more than 100 people got 
uh, onboarded to contribute to Go, and I don't I don't know how many con- contributions there were, but it was a lot, and so many lot. people were excited about that. We found bugs. Oh, that's fabulous. I mean, you know, you get new people. You get new people using Go, and uh, and they do stuff that you hadn't realized that someone would try, hmm. and you get bugs. This is very cool. That's awesome. So we we do have uh, some statistics from Jess Frizzell. 44 new open CLs, of which 22 were merged as of 2.46 this afternoon. That is awesome. Great news. And and we can't even talk about this without me thinking about Brad Fitzpatrick's picture of him with his uh, looks good to me shirt on and a handful of gophers stacked around him as he was helping us remotely take care of business, which is awesome. So we should uh, definitely thank Steve Francia for putting that whole thing together and everybody who contributed in the room from the mentors all the way to the uh, people who learned how to contribute the first time. It was fabulous. Yeah, it was so good. And we were, we are talking about uh, a few of the meetup organizers were so taken by the whole exercise that we are, I mean, different people went up to Steve separately and told him the same thing, which is we should be doing this a few times a year. They just getting meetups, meetup groups going through exactly that workshop. So it might be, ha- it might happen. It might be. It actually reminds me one of the Arizona meetups. I just saw on Twitter today. They're actually going through the same exercise at their meetup this, this coming month. Phoenix. Yes. Brian Downs. Thank you, Phoenix. Or doing this exact same thing. That's awesome. You got to yeah. love Brian Downs for being on top of his meetup organizing game. So if you're in the Phoenix area, go go to the Phoenix next Phoenix meetup and uh, you can get that same experience. So my wish list is to go through that and have someone from the Go team or one or two people going through the CL submitted so we can have that quick feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Anyway. That's awesome. All right. So, um, anybody else have a free software Friday shout out that they want to make? Dave, do you have one? Um, day in, day out, I'd have to say Mac ports because I am, I use a Mac all the time and I use the Unix tools all the time. And a lot of them on a Mac, you know, you know, these guys are getting a lot of leverage off of uh, the fact that they're packaging other open source software, but uh, it's a lot of work. I have, you know, helped debug a few of them, and you know, just just all the packaging work is um, is a big deal. Now, I have a question for you on the Mac ports, since we've got just a moment. Um, how do you find it in terms of of quality and and kind of completion? I I, I used Mac ports maybe 2006 or 2005, quite a while ago and abandoned it for homebrew because uh, mac ports just didn't seem to be that stable is are you do you have any issues with with mac ports or is it is it solid for you um it is more solid now than it was um i don't know why i didn't do homebrew back then i don't know if there was homebrew there was fink and so and i tried both and i ended up settling on mac ports um it's better now. They do a better job with in terms of the dependency tracking and the rebuild tracking and the cleanup. There used to be, it used to be just 
more often you'd get wedged and have to uninstall a bunch of stuff and reinstall clean. And I can't remember the last time I had to do that. Hmm. And I, at the time, oh, what, as late as five years ago, like so 2012, 2011, we were um, hosting a big old track thing on it. And I mean, we were hosting track on another box, but I was actually mirroring the server on my laptop. And it was using Mac ports to get me everything that I needed. And everything that I needed included, you know, track and Python and SQLite and um, Mercurial and a lot, you know, the whole tech tool chain. And this was this was for this crazy website that would run tech. It would use Emacs and tech. Emacs in batch mode and tech to do um, processing to turn your code into something formatted in a pretty mathematical style. And it, <laughs> it, it, it worked. <laughs> and it worked. It's a miracle. All right. So um, I think that wraps up our show today. I'd like to uh, thank David Chase for joining us and going deep into compiler land. Uh, I, I probably learned more in the last hour than I've learned in years on compilers. I really appreciate that. And thanks to everyone who's listening and the folks out on the Slack channel. Thank you so much. If you enjoy the show, be sure to share it with fellow Go programmers in your uh, meetups, in your office, uh, all across the land and you can easily subscribe by heading to gotime.fm and subscribe to our weekly email which is coming soon you can follow us on twitter at gotime.fm and if there's anything you want to discuss on the show or if you've got a guest that you think we should have head over to gotime or github.com slash gotime.fm slash ping and open an issue so with that uh, thanks everyone we really appreciate it thank you thank you and thank you dave you're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for this episode of Go Time. Tune in live on Thursdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community in Slack with us. In real time during the shows, head to changelog.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. Also, Linode, we host everything we do on Linode servers. Head to linode.com slash changelog. GoTime is edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for GoTime is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>